You're listening to Pull the Thread Podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Douglas. I'm a celebrity tailor, a creative entrepreneur, and a wild Mustang tamer. I took a brother home sewing machine, I put it on a $30 Craigslist desk, and eventually built a six-figure sewing business that supports a life I love, while generating hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue each year. Now, it's hard for me even to wrap my head around those numbers, and it definitely didn't come easy, but if there's anything that I love doing, it's helping others shorten their learning curve. I'm sharing what I've learned about entrepreneurship and business building as it applies to craft-based work and opening up about what I wish I knew when I first started. I'm sharing every tool, trick, and business process I've learned from costuming celebrities, manufacturing clothing, and selling products so that you can stop questioning your skills and start profiting from your work. So you ready? Let's go. Welcome back to Pull the Thread, episode three. It is a snow day in Nashville. Everything's completely shut down. Um, I am nursing my little green tea matcha latte. And um, since the entire everything is closed, um, technically so is my shop. But fortunately for me, I have access to it. And so I'm just taking a quick lunch break to record this for you guys. And then I'm going to run back um, over and and hop behind a machine and keep going. Um, so, yeah, we've been in a lot of um, a lot of sample production and pre-production for a major uh, small batch project that we've got that's going to basically occupy a full-time team for the next month. Um, so, all of that pre-production takes a ton of time and planning and a lot of tedious uh, tedious little steps. And so, that's been pretty consuming for me lately, but. I wanted to hop on and I wanted to break down into the things that I wish that I had done when I first started this business. So before we were fielding small batch orders and before we were um, running nonstop and and processing samples and meeting with designers to do consultations and before I was costuming rock stars and all of that. Um, so that's what this episode's about. So of course, I'm going to start out with a story for you. So here we go. Elizabeth Griscom was the eighth of 17 children, and she was a fourth-generation American and the daughter of a carpenter. She was born on January 1st, 1752. Now, you probably don't know Elizabeth as the daughter of a carpenter. You might actually know her by a different name, Betsy Ross. You also might not have known that at 21 years old, Betsy ran away with a guy named John Ross, and they got married in a bar across the river, which got her completely excommunicated from her entire family. See, Betsy was a Quaker. She attended a Quaker public school, and for eight hours a day, she was taught reading, writing, and then she received instruction in a trade. My guess is that it was sewing. (laughs) After finishing her schooling, her dad apprenticed her to a local upholsterer. And today we think of upholsterers primarily as sofa makers and such, but back then, in colonial times, they did all sorts of sewing jobs, including flag making. It was at her apprenticeship job that Betsy fell in love with another apprentice named John Ross, and he was the son of an Episcopal assistant rector at Christchurch. But here's the issue with that. See, Quakers frowned on interdenominational marriages. The penalty was pretty severe. Guilty parties parties were excommunicated from the Quaker house. So if you married outside of your denomination, you were cut off completely. So emotionally and economically from both your family and your church. They called it getting read out. 
your entire Quaker history and community would be instantly dissolved. But on a November night in 1773, 21-year-old Betsy eloped with John Ross, and they ferried across the Delaware River to Hugs Tavern and were married in New Jersey. Coincidentally, if you look up her wedding certificate, you'll see the name of New Jersey's governor at the time, William Franklin. That's Benjamin Franklin's son. Her wedding caused an irrevocable split between her and her entire family. Now, less than two years after their nuptials, the couple started their own upholstery business. Their decision was a pretty bold one since competition was tough. Think about it. When you first go into business, you're relying really heavily on your friends and your family, and Betsy couldn't count on her Quaker circle for business. Since she was read out of the Quaker community on Sundays, you could now find her at Christchurch sitting in P12 with John. The very same Christchurch that on some Sundays you could find George Washington, America's new commander-in-chief, sitting in an adjacent pew. Now, in January 1776, the couple's business began to start feeling the effects of war. See, fabrics were needed for the business, but they were become, becoming harder to come by, so business slowed. Uh, if you've operated a business through this pandemic, you know exactly what that's like, whether that was making masks and needing elastic or waiting on fabric.com to ship you a fabric order. Business slowed. I think we can all resonate with that. Now, John inevitably had to join the Pennsylvania militia, and sadly, he was mortally wounded in an explosion. In late May of 1776, Betsy was called upon by three members of a secret committee from the Continental Congress. Their names, George Washington, Robert Morris, and the uncle of her late husband, Colonel George Ross. Now, if you'd so, you know just how common it is to get phone calls from relatives asking you to simply whip stuff up for them and their friends, right? Or let's say, you know, hem a bridesmaid's dress before tomorrow. I know I have. Now, Betsy was already acquainted with General Washington. Not only did they both worship at Christ Church in Philadelphia, but Betsy's pew was right next to George and Martha Washington's pew. Her daughter even recalled in a memoir that she was previously well acquainted with him and that he had often been in their house in friendly visits as well as on business. She'd embroidered ruffles on his shirts and on the cuffs and that it was partly owing to his friendship for her that she was chosen to make the flag. According to Betsy, General Washington showed her a rough design of the flag that included a six-pointed star. Now, Betsy, she was a bit of a standout and a show-off with the scissors, right? So she demonstrated how to cut a five-pointed star in a single snip. If you can do this, I need to know. I want to see it. She finished the flag in late May or early June of 1776, and in July, the Declaration of Independence was read aloud for the first time at Independence Hall. You might not have known this, but Betsy Ross remained a business owner well after sewing the first American flag. She got married again after John. Um, she, she maintained this business through the Revolutionary War, the death of both husbands, because that second husband passed away as well, and also raising children. Through all of this, she managed to run her own upholstery business. And she continued operating for several decades after the war. So this is a two-time widow, the creator of the first American flag, and entrepreneur. 
and she did this on her own. After the soldiers left, she even wove cloth pouches that were used to hold gunpowder for the Continentals. One could say the work of this one seamstress and business owner certainly paved the way for innovation and legacy. I wonder what kind of lessons Betsy would have for us sewing business owners. (laughs) Would they be in the importance of finding a good pew at church? (laughs) The girl ran away to marry a guy across the river in a bar, and she ended up keeping company with one of the most famous names in American history. Now, if I had to start my sewing business all over at square one, I can think of a handful of things I would have either avoided like the plague or polished up a little bit better before things truly grew. I'm no Betsy Ross, but looking back at the journey that I've been on for the past four years, I can see five very loud things that I would do differently if I had to do it all over again. So here we go. Five things I wish I did when I first went into business. The first one. I would say, zero in on your niche early, in all caps, bolded, underlined. I'd pick one niche. I would nail it down super hard. See, when I started, I was still trying to a lot of different things to see what I liked and what I was actually good at. I was also downright terrified of not making rent. So no matter what people wanted done with a needle and thread, I said yes. I thought that if I kept on taking on the odd projects, I would be challenging myself to get better at the things that I wasn't good at. And although this was a great way to refine my skills while also learning what I liked and didn't like, it was a downright awful business move and an awful way to move the needle, aka make freaking money. I wish that I'd pared down what I really like to do versus what made me money and somehow found a balance between those two from the get-go so that I had enough runway to learn the harder stuff later. When you're doing a completely different project every week, you get good at problem solving, but since you're not repeating a single process, everything is slow. As my business has scaled monumentally and with the pandemic going on, I launched a division for small batch manufacturing, and that way we would create a new revenue stream that could replace one of the entertainment-based ones in the meantime. And for the first few months, the exact same thing happened all over again. We ran all sorts of different samples for a while until we got our first actual batch project. It was tedious and slow, and I spent hours pouring over tech packs just to figure out how to make one sample. And oftentimes, one was all we'd make. Since most people who want to design a clothing line don't understand just how expensive it is to manufacture an actual batch... Just like on day one, no one's compensating you for the learning curve. If I started over again tomorrow, I would have zeroed in on one to two niches immediately and then I would find freedom in telling people to go elsewhere for the projects that are so bizarre and off the wall that you'll have to take a college course on their behalf just to sort them out. And you know, I still do this in other facets of my business. Like I get requests all the time to make a certain item and I always refer it to a friend because I know that he's the best at that. Um, Same thing with leather products. Yeah, we have all of the equipment to do it, but I already know of a designer who's phenomenal at it. So why would I try to be decent at everything when I can be amazing at a couple things and then support my friends who are amazing at their niche too? So once you master these few niches, it's easier to add another niche as a revenue stream or even replace one that took you a while to realize you don't really like doing it. The truth is, 
Hemming bridesmaids dresses is super profitable, but when wedding season is over, um, you're going to need to find a new niche to fill in your time. Okay. This next one, I'm, I'm face palming right now. Number two, document better. <laughs> I document how I solved customers' problems better than I did. I think I tend to focus so hard on getting the finished product that I neglect documenting the process. Had I been better at that, I think I could have proven my solutions quicker, which would have helped in my marketing materials to attract more business. And I also would have had proof that I can do what I say I can. These days, I keep Slack channels for every client and project so we can document exactly what worked and what didn't and what stage of the process we're in and whose job it is to do each of those steps. When I first started, that was notebooks and I wrote notes about what I did to different alterations, but sometimes... When I'd have to do an extra fitting just to get a fit right, I wish that I'd taken detailed notes about every single thing that I did, from seam allowances to how much I took in to where, what panel I took in from, especially if time had passed and I didn't remember what was done. This plays into leaving yourself a paper trail. Just do it. I did it and take it from me. It's not fun to figure it out later. It actually really sucks especially those moments where you're trying to, to rush through something so quickly. So at the end of it, you're like, I'll write down what I changed later. I'll write down the details later. And then you never do. It doesn't work and it's not sustainable when you try to scale your business and do more revenue and, and work with more customers. Now I wrote out my goals like crazy, but as far as the tangible steps that I took to generate business, I sort of threw stuff at the wall and looked to see what stuck. And when you're throwing a lot of things at the same time, you don't even know what it is that you're picking up and throwing. And had I documented every move in that area as well, whether it had been a social media post or a specific way that I handled referrals or a business move in general, I'd have known quicker what actions to repeat and what to leave behind. I also wish that I documented better in terms of the businessy and the legal aspects of the business. From categorizing expenses to tracking mileage for your taxes to saving and organizing receipts to setting aside money for taxes quarterly, I could have done so much better at documenting. Number three. All right, I'm kicking myself for not doing this one from the jump. Ready? Probably the most important one. Commit yourself to a community. This is something that I didn't do because I felt like I was the only one pursuing what I was doing. And that's so stupid. I had no idea that there were multiple communities out there made to support sewists and plenty out there to support entrepreneurs. If I could do this all over again, I would have put myself out there early and more often. I would have jumped right in and connected with others who do what I do immediately rather than standing back and assuming that they viewed me as a competitor. Hint, they didn't. I think it's so easy to get distracted by all of the things that you need to get done that you end up on an island and to be honest, you're not doing anything exceptionally well when you're not plugged in because you have no idea what resource, you don't know what you don't know. You have no idea what resources are out there for you to make your job quicker or easier or your outcome way better. It's the age old tale of the guy who tries to network the entire room and then he ends up not truly connecting with anyone. 
Had I spent more time engaging with my specific niche and not just my industry as a whole, I could have identified the problems that actually needed solving. And in turn, I would have been able to help people better. For instance, rather than being so present on Music Row in Nashville and in production like live events, I wish I'd spent more time around costumers and dressmakers and theater kids who, even though we don't share the same audiences or client bases, they could have prepared me better for the actual sewing challenges that I would face later. Number four, get ideal and fast. I don't mean become perfect overnight. I mean, narrow down who your ideal client is. Figure out whose problems you love to solve and what attracts those people in. After working with numerous people that drove me up the wall, didn't get it or get what I was trying to do or didn't pay on time or brought me the worst materials, etc., I sat wondering why things were so bad. And then it hit me. You can't be everyone's cup of tea. I am saying this and cheersing you with my little matcha latte. Some clients are meant to be yours and some just aren't. Some like it green, some like black tea, okay? When you take on those as your own who aren't meant to be your clients, you will clash heads, you'll disappoint, and you'll get totally stressed out because they're blowing you up at all hours of the night. And it took me a while, but I created what's called an ideal client profile. So here's a tool for this one. I wrote down my top five favorite clients. And then I wrote down every detail that I knew about them. And then I sat back and I looked at my list and I quickly identified similarities between my ideal clients. And those became my client requirements going forward. Had I done this from the start, it would have given me some much needed confidence. I would have been less afraid of looking stupid and more gutsy with what I would and wouldn't accept from clients. I would have better boundaries. I was so afraid of not getting the gig that I let myself take the beating for clients' bad decisions and didn't have boundaries around what fabrics or designs we would work with. When it was absolutely pointless to allow since those choices were critical to the bottom line, I should have bossed up and said, no, but we can do this instead rather than, okay, let me figure it out and spend a month decorating stretch velvet because I think that that's what they want, but their communication isn't in line with my ideal client. And then we're just in hell together and no one's happy. Now that my language and branding and communication style is designed to attract my ideal clients, I spend zero time finding work for my teams to do because our dream clients, they come right on in like bees to honey. For instance, at the time that I'm recording this, it's mid-February. At the moment, we are booked and paid up for work continuing into April. And then we have a list of over 20 clients that are trying to beat down our door to get um, priority over each other. Um, And we're still going through and organizing those projects to um, pick the ones that we're the best fit for and we'll be able to deliver most powerfully on their behalf for. All right, number five, last one. Pay yourself with structure rather than withdrawing regularly. Let me explain, especially especially with 2020 in our rearview mirror. Um, 
I have experienced this on so many different levels. As someone who is self-employed, you are at some point going to have to buy a car, a house, you're going to have to get a loan, whatever. And no matter how profitable you are, the bank is going to want to see regular deposits pop into your account. So whether that's $5 or $5,000, find some structure and regularly withdraw money from your business bank account to your personal bank account within the same three-day period every month or twice, you know, twice a month every month. So if payroll for you runs the 15th through the 30th, then no matter what, it is time for you to withdraw several days before uh, at the end of the month, every single month, okay? It's also helping you create a healthy money habit before you have a true payroll situation in place. Just trust me here. Last year, um, all of the paycheck protection programs came out. The first thing that all of these lenders asked you to do was to prove regular deposits into the accounts of your employees. And we're talking, you had to download every single bank statement to prove that you were paying them regularly so that they could estimate out exactly about what your payroll was. Now, if I was consistently paying myself uh, $200 at one time and $3,000 at another and $6,000 at another, then it's chaos, okay? Lenders won't approve that. They'll just tell you no because they can't figure out the semblance of normal. It doesn't look like a business. And if it, if, if it doesn't look like a business in the eyes of a bank, you're going to have trouble at some point. So definitely do that one, all right? Just trust me here. So there it is, five things I wish that I did when I first got started. And if this list intimidates you, please connect with me online. I'd love to inspire you or uh, pop into your inbox if you hop on the mailing list um, and keep you excited and motivated in your journey. Entrepreneurship is completely terrifying and immensely fulfilling. And so it's a journey that I would recommend to anybody who is finding themselves unsatisfied or a little disconnected from their work. If you are trying to turn a side hustle into a business, these five things will absolutely give you a little bit of clarity um, and structure to it. And structure is definitely something um, that you're going to want to lean into. And so that way you can avoid a little bit of the chaos of starting. Um, I can't wait to bring you episode four. Stay tuned. Uh, hop on the mailing list if you are wanting to connect um, or reach out on Instagram. That's where you can best find me. That's just at Crystal Douglas, K-R-Y-S-T-A-L Douglas, um, or hop on the website, crystaldouglas.com. Stay tuned. You've just finished an episode of Pull the Thread. It means the world to me that you landed here and hit play. If you got something out of this podcast, please hit that subscribe button. And if you're feeling mega generous, leave a review. 